right. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. If you've got your Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 13. That's where we're going to be. And while you turn there, I'd love to welcome you, especially if you're a guest. Uh, we're so glad that you joined us this morning. Um, my name is Parker Richardson, and I serve as the campus pastor here at High Point Carterville. And uh, we're glad you joined us. Uh, we've been walking through, well, we've been walking through is a little misleading. We started last week um, an introduction <laughs> about the parables. And uh, if you missed that sermon, we'd love for you to, to listen to it and catch up with us. Um, but we're walking through our first parable today. Last week was an introduction about what parables are and the purpose of those. And we'll review that a little bit, um, but I can't review the whole hour. So I would encourage you to, to listen to that. And uh, Jesus gives us the reason in verses 10 through 17 of Matthew 13, um, if you want to make a note of that and look at it on your own later. Um, but before we dive into that, I want to let you know of two things. Um, one is that um, Growth Track is tonight. If you're a guest, um, if maybe you've been attending for a while and you've been thinking about, okay, what does it mean to be a member here? I'd love to hear more about this church um, we're hosting a dinner tonight from five to seven right here in the building. Um, we'll feed you and feed your children. Uh, we just need you to let us know you're coming and you can sign up at next steps, um, in the lobby after the service. If you'd like to join us for that, we won't ask you to commit to anything, but we will let you know who we are and we'd love to get to know who you are and, uh, let you pray and discern if this might be a good fit, a, a good church family for you to be a part of and join. So that's tonight. If you're interested, if you haven't gone, we'd love for you to to attend. And then secondly, um, we're always looking for um, resources to help equip parents um, when it comes to discipling your own children. And a funny story, I was actually talking to my old seminary professor um, last week. We try to catch up monthly or so. And um, he was asking me about a couple of things. And I said, hey, well, I have you on the phone. Uh, we're about to move into a series and start teaching the parables. Do you have any resources or commentaries that you've used or that you would recommend, and he responded with, you know, call me crazy, but um, he said there is a um, family devotional um, by Marty Mikowski on the parables that's phenomenal, and it will be a blessing to your families and your parents if they want to walk their children through the parables. So I have a copy, just so you can see it, and uh, studied through it this week and was looking at the parable this week, but if you're a parent and uh, you're looking for something hands-on with your children, this is a great resource. Um, it's called Listen Up. 10-Minute Family Devotionals in the Parables by Marty Mikowski. Um, it's got activities built in here. Um, if you're at home with your children and you need to keep them busy and do something, but also make it constructive and biblical and about the kingdom, this is a great resource. And what you do is essentially um, you take one parable a week, and for 10 minutes, five days a week, um, you go through this devotional. And there's activities built in and all those kind of things. So by the end of the week, your children have spent five different um, days, 10 minutes a day, um, learning different facets about this parable. So um, do with it what you will, but I wanted to recommend it to you. Um, he recommended this to me, and I read it this week, and my sermon you know, is not going to be regurgitating the children's devotional, but um, it was actually really helpful. So if you're interested, I would encourage you to pick that up um, for yourself. So uh, hopefully by now, you're in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, we're going to be looking at the parable of the sower to start us off. Um, and the interesting thing about the parable of the sower is that there's only three, I think I counted, maybe four parables in the scriptures that Jesus gives an explanation of in his own words. Um, you've got the parable of the sower, you've got the parable of the weeds, um, I think the fig tree is another one where Jesus gives um, an explanation of the parable, but the other ones, Jesus tells them and then moves on. 
And uh, we hear in Matthew 13 and also in the book of Mark um, that Jesus would explain these things to his followers privately, to those who had ears that wanted to hear. Um, But we don't get the explanations recorded in the text, in the scriptures. Um, So we have to do some digging and some searching and interpreting ourselves. So we started this week to be safe. We're going to look at one of the parables um, that Jesus gives us the explanation. And we talked about kind of some rules and interpreting parables last week and all those kind of things. But the parable's broken up. Um, Jesus tells the parable in verses 1 through 9 of Matthew 13, if you're looking at your phone or your Bible. And then he gives us the explanation, and he picks up in verse 18 um, through 23. So we're going to read both of those sections, and then we're going to walk through them together. And how we're going to do it is we're kind of going to kind of look at, um, you know, verse 3 and then verse 18, and verse 4 and verse 19. We're going to look at the, the, the sentence about the different soil, and then we're going to go straight to Jesus' explanation about what the soil means, and then we'll explain it. Does that make sense? So hopefully, both of those sections are on the same page in your Bible. Otherwise, you're going to be turning back and forth, and I apologize for that. But um, if you're on a phone, you can just scroll back and forth, and all of it will be on the screens for you. So let's read it together, because I'd love for you to see it with your own eyes. And um, if you'll stand, uh, we like to not be super weird, but to give honor and reverence to the Word of God, and uh, just by standing and doing something with our bodies to, to remind ourselves that, hey, this is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative Word, that God spoke these words to us, um, that He inspired this whole book. Second Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed. Um, it came from Him. He carried the human authors along by His Holy Spirit. So this is if God Himself were saying it to us. So uh, I'm going to read 1 through 9, and then I'll skip to 18 through 23. Now this is the parable of the sower. It says this, Matthew 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about Him, so that He got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And He told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow... And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear." And then in verse 18, Jesus explains the parable. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the words of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your word, God, I invite you um, to teach us. Um, Father, I can't change a single heart. Our deepest prayer this morning um, as High Point Church is that um, hearts would be changed, is that the the dead would be made alive, is that chains would be broken. God, that salvation um, would be granted and new birth would happen in this room. And God, I can't cause a single one of those things. Only you can. 
Um, so God, help us to behold Christ in this um, text. And God, in light of this parable, would you, by your grace, soften our hearts um, to hear and to see what you are teaching us through this parable. Thank you, um, God, in your grace that you even give us the opportunity to know more about you and about the kingdom. Um, and it's because you love us. So Father, thank you for this opportunity. Teach us now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Um, some of you know that I grew up here in Carryville, and um, I went to Carryville Middle School, elementary, middle, and high school, actually. And um, I was a basketball player, and uh, I use that term loosely. Uh, I know Carryville's a baseball town, and uh, since kind of evolved into some lacrosse and all the other things, Carryville was not known for basketball uh, when I represented the team. But uh, my brother played as well, and we're pretty close in age, so our home um, over off Powell, near Powell Park over there, um, Cox Park, uh, was always um, resounding with the noise of basketballs bouncing on the hardwood floor all the time. And it drove my mom nuts, um, drove her absolutely nuts, to the point where my dad would kind of notice and he would lay down the law like, hey, as soon as you start passing that thing and something breaks, like it's your behind and you're paying for all this and all the things, right? And uh, there were a lot of times where my brother and I, we heard what my dad was saying, but we didn't listen, right? There's, and there's a difference, parents, you can amen this if you want, there's a difference between hearing and listening, right? There's a huge difference between hearing something and listening to the words that you're hearing. And I tell you that because Jesus essentially tells us this is what's happening when he teaches the parables, that there's a lot of people that hear, there's crowds and crowds of people that hear these words but then there's only some, there's a part of the crowd that truly listens, that leans in, that draws in and wants to, to get the message. And without kind of rehashing last week's message, we learned that parables are intentionally designed to do that. That Jesus told these stories and the purpose of them was to divide the crowd. They're intentionally a little confusing. And by confusing, I don't mean God's trying to confuse you. I mean that they're hard to interpret unless you know what each of the different characters and different figures in the story represent. If I read the parable and talk about a sower sowing seed, we have no idea what it means unless we know who the sower is and what the seed is and what the soils represent. But a lot of times Jesus would just tell these stories and it was meant to conceal the truth from those um, who didn't actually love him and want to know him more, that were just following him because he was healing people and giving handouts and you know, turning a kid's Lunchable into food for thousands of people and all of the, like He was feeding people everywhere he went. I don't know why the word Lunchable is funny, but I, I laugh too, I don't know. Um, but it is. And they were following Jesus for what he might do for them, but then there were some, there was a remnant of the crowd who... Um, knew that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And then they knew that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the one that God had sent, and they were willing to forsake everything to follow him with their lives. And those people, Jesus would tell a parable, and they would lean in and start asking questions. Like, hey, what does this mean? And it's ironic that we often condemn the disciples for asking the questions, but it's the result that Jesus wanted when he told the parables. Those that didn't care about him, those that were just in it for what he would do for them would say, wow, this is difficult, I'm out of here. And those that genuinely wanted to know him intimately and be like him and follow him, they would lean in. So these parables had a dual purpose. It was concealing truth from the self-righteous, 
from those that did not think that they um, had much sin in their life, the scribes and the Pharisees who acted like they had it all together, those that didn't need God to save them, they just needed God to give them a hand every now and then. He would conceal the truth from them and they would walk away going, this is difficult. But to those who knew they were broken, to those who knew they were sinners, to those who knew they needed a savior, they would press in. And the irony of the parables is the scribes and the Pharisees and those that had their lives together, the wealthy, all those folks, the self-righteous, they miss out on the mysteries of the kingdom. And you know who gets it? The poor and the broken and the tax collectors and the sinners. They get the master's level education on the mysteries of the kingdom. Why? Because they were willing to admit that they were broken, that they needed a savior. So if that's you this morning, you're in good company. We aren't gathering here to try to show one another that we've got our lives together. We're gathering here because we know we don't. And as much money as we spend to try to make it look like everything is you know, put together and polished, that our lives are broken, that our own sinful flesh is broken, that our relationships are broken. And it doesn't mean everything's in shambles, but it means our flesh and our sin and our selfishness affects every area of our lives. And we need someone to save us, not to give us a hand every now and then, but to resurrect us to new life. Left to my own devices and to my own sin and to my own flesh, I am doomed. And I need God's grace to come in and stop me in my tracks, to show me the beauty of who God is and what he's done for me, and to let that captivate my heart and run after him with my life, to bring me to new life. And it's those people who aren't good enough, who don't behave well enough, all those things. It's none of that. It's not gospel. It's those who know that they are broken and know that they need grace and they need a savior. It's those who Jesus would reveal the mysteries of the kingdom to. Does that make sense? To give you some context of the book of Matthew, where we've been, um, last week we learned that Jesus had spent most of his time in his ministry teaching to the Jews. Um, he had taught them from the Old Testament law. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, what's Jesus doing? He's pulling out the Ten Commandments and other teachings from the Old Testament. Why? Because the Jews grew up with the Old Testament. They had memorized most of it. And he was showing these Jews that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, that it was all pointing to him, that he was the Messiah, he was the chosen one from God, he was the Passover lamb, he was the bread of life. You know, Moses gave you manna, but um, Jesus essentially in John 6 says, you think Moses gave you manna, but Moses didn't give you anything. God gave you manna. And now he's given you a greater manna. He's given you me. I'm the bread of life. I'm not just here to give you physical bread. I came to be spiritual bread for your souls. But he's showing that all of the Old Testament was pointing to him. The problem is Israel ends up rejecting Jesus over and over and over again to the point where at the end of chapter 11, Jesus, um, in Matthew eleven twenty 20 through 24, Jesus mentioned these three different regions specifically and condemns them for they've rejected him, they've rejected what he's taught and what he's done. Um, and he says it's uh, Chorazin, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And he says it would be better for the city of Sodom on the day of judgment than it will be for these cities that have rejected the king. The king has come, he's revealed himself to be the king, the Messiah is here, and he was rejected. And then chapter 12 is where all of this comes to a head. Where in chapter 12, Jesus essentially goes head to head with the Pharisees and uh, because he's breaking their you know, things that they added on to the law, 
Jesus didn't break God's law. He broke, he intentionally broke all of the extra things that the scribes and the Pharisees added to the law to hinder people and to oppress people. And Jesus loved to break those things, right? Where if you pick some grain to eat on the Sabbath, they would say, ah, this is the Sabbath. You can't do that. You're working. And that wasn't the heart of God's law. It was that we would rest and remind ourselves that God is our provider and that he will sustain us and keep us and all those things. But the scribes and the Pharisees said, if you pick up this much weight, now you're working. Or if you walk this far, now you're exerting yourself and you're not keeping the Sabbath. And Jesus would intentionally break those all the time. And twice in Matthew chapter 12, um, Jesus breaks these two things. He eats, uh, you know, he picks some grain on the Sabbath and then he heals someone on the Sabbath. And they're going, oh, you can't, you know, give someone their whole life back. It's the Sabbath, right? And Jesus is like, you've totally missed it. And in verse 14, they um, conspire to destroy him. Not my words, literally Matthew's words. From that point on, they were conspiring how to destroy him. And then they just keep going at it. They say Jesus is casting out demons by the power of the devil. And Jesus says that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and that won't be forgiven. He calls them a brood of vipers and says that they will be condemned on the judgment day if they don't repent. And it would be better, he says it again, for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for these people who reject him. And that's kind of how Matthew 12 ends. And Jesus starts kind of evading the scribes and the Pharisees because they are literally trying to kill him and destroy him. And from that point on, Jesus, um, not fully, but the majority of Jesus's focus moves away from the Jews and he starts teaching in parables to the Gentiles, but to anyone who would hear, anyone who would have ears to hear. And this is consistent with the book of Romans. Paul says that a, a partial hardening has come over Israel so that the Gentiles could be brought in. And then when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, then Israel will be brought back in and all of the true Israel will be saved. And we see this playing out in Jesus's day, that Israel has rejected the king. And so Jesus now turns his focus to the Gentiles who did not have all the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't grow up with it. So what does he teach them in? He teaches them in parables. He teaches them in stories. And those who would have ears to hear would draw in and press in and he would give them and reveal to them the mysteries of the kingdom. Does that make sense? That's where we are and we're gonna look at the first one today. So my hope and my prayers as we look at this is that we would be like the disciples. They're not known for their perfection, right? Acts says they're uneducated, common men, but what did they do right? They knew they needed a savior. And as broken and as fallen, as forgetful as they were, they continued to look to Jesus to be their, their teacher, their savior, their king, their Lord, and their master. And my prayer is that as we look at this parable, that we would be humble, that we would ask the Lord to, to soften the soil of our hearts so that this teaching would fall on good soil and that we would um, not be the self-righteous, unrepentant, spiritually lazy soul, but we would be the humble, hungry, broken, longing for more spiritual bread from our father soul as we look at this parable. Because if you're here this morning, and you're, you're, we're glad you're here, but if you're here and you're just in it for attendance credit so that people in the community might think that you love Jesus a little more, uh, that's fine. There's so much more for you than that. We want so much more for you than that. And in light of this parable, Jesus says that's probably all you might get unless you have a heart that's truly longing to understand what Jesus is teaching in this parable. Does that make sense? So let's look at it together. Let's look at um, verse one. It says this, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. 
and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And I love this. Jesus is taking the, the posture of a rabbi where he would sit, and you've got all this crowd on the beach standing, and there weren't microphones back then. We talked about this last week. So often, rabbis, um, Jesus, we see him do this often. He would either get in a boat and push it out and use the the vibration of his sound over the waters to communicate to the people, or he would just stand near the body of water. But Jesus takes a seat in a boat, crowds are on the beach, and Jesus starts teaching. Here come the crowds. And we learned last week that Mark and Matthew both tell us that from this point forward, Jesus, anytime he's teaching to a crowd, he's only going to teach in parables. From this point on, now he would interact with scribes and Pharisees and answer their questions and all those things. He would interact with individuals but when it was time for him to teach a crowd, Mark says this and Matthew says this. I think it's around verse 34, 35 in Matthew 13. Um, he says, from that point on, Jesus did not speak to them unless it was in parables. And this is um, him condemning the rejection and judging the rejection of Israel, but also being merciful to all people who would have ears to hear. So he's sitting by the beach, he's teaching, and then we've got to ask, First line is the sower went out to sow. And I mentioned this earlier. Who's the sower and what seed is he sowing? Now, you get some help this morning because the good thing about this parable is the parable of the sower is in Matthew 13, but it's also in Luke chapter eight and Mark chapter four. Um, so there's a couple of times that we're gonna pull. If you wanna make a note next to Matthew 13, you can say see Luke eight, see Mark four, um, because different elements of this parable are recorded in those sections um, so that's encouraging, uh, fun, you know, food for thought, fun trivia fact. Um, the gospel of John doesn't have any parables in it. Um, if you wanted just kind of a fun fact to know that. Um, and I think the reason is John, um, goes pretty deep, pretty heavy into Jesus is the eternal son of God. And other than kind of the I am statements of Jesus, most of John's writing is focused on the last week of Jesus's life. Um, his betrayal of the last supper of the week of Jesus being, you know, um, accused, falsely accused, and put on trial, and tortured, and all of those things. John zeroes in on that. Um, but the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's parables in there. Um, so Luke tells us in Luke chapter 8, verse 11, this will be on the screen, he says this. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So we know what the seed is. Tells us straight from scripture that the seed is the word of God. So you've got a sower, and he's sowing seed, which lets us know that the sower, um, I would argue, originally is Jesus, um, who is the word of God, right? Who came to speak the word of God. Everything Jesus says that comes out of his mouth is the very words of God because he's God in human flesh. He's the word made flesh, John 1, 14. Um, that he is the word of God. He's the original sower. Um, you could even argue the Old Testament prophets that were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were sowing seed. Um, Jesus being kind of the OG sower, but here's something for us to see that anyone from that point on that's casting seed, that anyone that's sharing the word of God, teaching from the Bible, anyone that's sharing the gospel, right? What's the word of God? It's the gospel. It's the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done for us from Old Testament to new, all culminating and pointing to this one man. So anyone that's sharing the gospel with somebody, anyone that's teaching from the Bible, anyone that's sharing the good news about Jesus is sowing seed. I'm sowing seed right now and praying that it falls on good soil. You can sow seed with your neighbor and tell them about Jesus and pray that it falls on good, soft soil that will receive the word and it will 
receive the seed and it will take root. But anyone that is sharing the word of God, sharing the good news, sharing the gospel is a sower. Does that make sense? And here's what's interesting about the parable. We just read it. The message is gonna be scattered to all nations, to all people groups. But as it's scattered, there's going to be different kinds of responses. And this is the mystery of the kingdom. Jesus is revealing to us that, hey, as the gospel message goes forth, there will be different kinds of responses. There will be a day, one day, when Jesus Christ returns and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, believer and unbeliever. When Jesus Christ, the maker and creator of all things, when he returns in the flesh, everybody's gonna bow and confess that he's Lord. But until then, as the the word goes out, not everyone is gonna bow the knee. And Jesus is telling us this in the parable, that as the gospel goes forth, as people hear it, as it's being preached, not everyone is going to bow the knee to this message and to this Savior. There's going to be different kinds of responses. Um, There will be, and what's interesting, we talked about this a lot. Chris was actually really helpful. Our student pastor um, was actually really helpful about this this week in our teaching team meeting as we wrestled with this. But if you look statistically, You've got four soils, right? You've got one that we read that the seed falls on the path and it doesn't even fall really on soil. Um, it's those people that don't even understand the message. But then the other three soils, you've got people who profess. They hear the word and they receive it in some way. But out of the three that are remaining, two of them eventually fall away. One's withered by the heat of the sun. One's choked by the thorns. So if you look at the, the three soils, Two-thirds of them don't last. Two-thirds of them are phony. Now, it's really important for us to realize that I don't think Jesus meant for us to interpret that this means that two-thirds of all the people that claim to be Christian are not, right? I don't think we're meant to take it that literally. But I do think it is a warning for us that there's many people who profess that they know Christ, but they don't possess him. They profess it, but they don't possess, especially when you look at statistics in our day today, right? If you look at the, uh, the Public Religion Institute, they did a 2020 census of American religion where from 2014 all the way to 2020, they gathered this data and they found that 70% of Americans identify as Christian, 70%. Now, in light of that, I'm not saying that exactly two thirds of them are not But I do think we should heed the warning of this parable and look around in our world today and go, you know what? If 70% of those people actually had the gospel take, the gospel seed take root in their hearts, we would see a lot more fruit in our world today. If 70% of Americans um, had the seed of the gospel fall on good soil, right? So is it two thirds of them that are deceived? No, I'm not sure. I don't think Jesus meant for us to take it that literally, but he did mean mean for us to heed that warning. And the response this morning, I wanna be very clear. The application this morning is not to look around at other people and go, man, I wonder what kind of soil they are. I wonder what, how much fruit they're producing. Are they 30, are they 60, are they 100? No, the warning for all of us is to stop and go, dear Lord, I pray that my heart would be soft soil to receive your word. This morning, tomorrow, on a daily basis, especially if you've never heard the gospel before, My prayer is that today is your day where God uses this sermon to remove some of the rocks and some of the thorns from your heart and softens it. And it might not be today where the seed takes root, but maybe God uses this 
As 1 Corinthians 3 says that Paul planted, but then Apollos came along and watered, but God brought the growth, and I don't, I'm not sovereign, I don't know what God's doing in your heart, but maybe today's the day where the seed produces fruit of salvation. Maybe today's where it, it starts to, God starts to, to you know, plow and till away at the soil of your heart. I don't know. But the response for all of us is not to look horizontally at other people and start going, yeah, they look like a 30, they look like a 60, you know, that's definitely you know, the path over there. No, it's to say, dear God, I hope, I don't even know the soil of my own heart. I could be deceiving myself. And God, I hope that you would continually, by your grace, soften my heart to receive your word. Does that make sense? That's the warning. That's the the application of the parable. So let's look at the first soil. Verse four, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. And let's look at what Jesus interprets this to be in verse 19. He says this, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So this seed that fell along the path that's devoured by the birds, what happened? The birds there are when Satan comes and he snatches away what was sown in the heart. This is the unbelieving heart. This is the heart that's hardened because of sin. The birds that come along is Satan. And what we can learn from this soil is that anytime the gospel is being preached, anytime seed is being thrown and cast, Satan is always actively trying to oppose it taking root in your heart. Always. He will lie to you, he will deceive you, he will distract you, but Satan is always trying to snatch the seed and not allow it to take root in someone's heart every single time the gospel is preached. I I feel this in my own life. As a believer, there are still times where because of the hardness of my heart, because my heart is wicked and it wanders and I find my identity in lesser things and I fall in love with lesser things, There are times where we're in a worship service and we're singing about the beauty of God or we're hearing God's word preached and seeing the authority of Christ and the majesty of Christ and I am bored. I'm bored. I don't see it. I don't love it. I don't treasure it. Why? Because of my sin, because my heart wanders all the time and it grows hard. So I'm always asking the Lord, Lord, soften my heart to your goodness, to your kindness, to your grace, because left to my own devices, I will go and build my own little sandcastle kingdom instead of pursuing the kingdom of God among the earth. I'll try to build my own empire and fall in love with my own stuff and fall in love with myself. And we can be singing about beautiful, eternal, glorious things. And because of my sin, there's this haze, there's this boredom, And it's because I haven't softened my heart to receive the word of the Lord or ask the Lord to soften my heart. Does that make sense? Even as a believer, we all go through seasons of this and moments of this. But it's everywhere. And let me ask you this. Why would Satan try to oppose the seed of the gospel taking root in someone's heart? Why would he do it? Because as soon as the gospel truly takes root, he's done Right? He can attack you. He can tempt you. Let's be honest. That's going to happen until the day that we die. We will be tempted by the enemy. We will be distracted by the enemy. But at that moment where the gospel seed truly takes root in your heart, 
And that person is forgiven by God's grace and his sin is cast as far as the east is from the west and he's united to Christ in his death but also united to Christ and his resurrection to new life and Jesus' holiness is put on us and his righteousness is put on us and his sin, our sin was nailed to the cross and he's put his spirit in us and we're sealed, guaranteeing this inheritance that we'll get one day. Satan cannot snatch us out of the Father's hand. John 10, no one will snatch them out of my hand. That as soon as the gospel truly takes root, Satan can tempt you, he can distract you, but he cannot indwell you and he cannot snatch you from the Father if the Spirit of God is in you and he has marked you with his own spirit. He can't. So of course Satan would try to oppose this message taking root. He always will. Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. But when we are dead in our sin and we love our sin, The gospel is foolish to us, to those that love their sin and celebrate their sin and reject God and have no need for him. A message about the holiness of God and the sin of man and forgiveness provided by God himself being sacrificed for all who would repent and forsake their wicked and sinful ways and die to themselves and follow Christ. That message is foolishness to those that are in love with their sin and in love with themselves. The message makes no sense. It's like a seed landing where it doesn't belong. Parker, this is 2022. You expect me to believe that there's you know, a, a universal truth out there, that there's a God who's, who's in charge of, of truth and he judges men and women by the standards in this book that's bigoted, that's outdated, that's racist, like all the things that our culture says. You expect me to believe this? That is seed falling on the path being snatched up by the enemy. He has deceived them and allowed them to believe a lie. The biggest lie that our culture believes right now is that truth comes from our own feelings, that there is no objective standard of truth, that you have to look internally to find whatever is true, right? Whatever you feel like in the moment, that's what's true. Whatever gender you feel like, whatever mode of sexuality you feel like, whatever you feel like in the moment, that's true. No, that's a ter- we are a terrible standards of truth. We can't even obey our own standards. We can't. And Satan has deceived us. John in Revelation, um, what chapter is it? I believe it's Revelation 12. Um, yeah, Revelation 12, 9. John calls Satan the deceiver of the whole world. That he will allow us to, as Romans 1 says, to exchange the truth about God for a lie and to fall in love with the lusts and the passions of our flesh to worship ourselves, to worship our bodies, to worship sexual orientation and all the things and deceive us to when that seed gets cast, it never falls on any soil. Because of the distractions of the enemy, he can swoop in and take it and snatch it away from us. Does that make sense? And he is actively doing that. And how do we turn that path into soil? We pray to the Lord and we ask God by his grace to he himself ask God to plow and to till and to break up that hard path Um, to to soften the soil to receive the message. You and I can't do that. But as you share the gospel with people, as you um, show the love of Christ to people, we pray that God would use those things to soften the hearts of the recipients of those acts and those teachings. That he would take the path and he would water it and he would break it up so that they could receive the message. 2 Corinthians 4 says, in their case, the God of this world, um, and the God of this world is little g there. He's talking about Satan referring to him as the God of this present world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is actively deceiving and snatching seed and trying to blind the minds of unbelievers. And praise be to God that any moment God can remove the blinders and remove the scales from someone's eyes so that they can receive the truth of the gospel. Jesus actually warned his disciples, we won't read the whole thing, but in Matthew 10, uh, when he sends them out, he actually warns them, hey, there's gonna be people that reject this message. And when they reject the message, shake the dust off your feet and keep moving. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And they will answer for that rejection one day unless they eventually repent. But shake the dust off and keep moving. There are soils that will not receive the message. Jesus warned his disciples about that um, before they left. Let's look at the rocky ground. Verse five, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched and since they had no root, they withered away. And I love how Matthew just repeats the problem three times in these two verses. Did you catch it? He says the same phrase twice, and then he kind of changes the wording a little bit at the end. But look at what the issue is. They fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. There it is again. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. What's the problem with the soil? It's shallow. This is the shallow heart, the shallow soil. There was no depth. What does Jesus say this means in verse 20 and 21? He says, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. That sounds like a good thing, right? Yet he has no root in or inside himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is the one who hears the gospel, says, that sounds awesome, but then when trouble comes, when trial comes, when persecution comes for following Jesus, this person walks away. And here's the thing, here's the issue, and we'll dive into this a little deeper, but Christianity, the gospel message, says this person receives it with joy. It is a joyful message. Like, let's be honest. The fact that the God of the universe would look down on me, a sinner, a rebel, who's continued to stiff arm him for all of my days and love me enough to rescue me and save me and be kind to me and show his grace to me through the person of Jesus Christ, the fact that he would do that and bring me to new life is a joyful thing. It really is. But so many times we share half the gospel with people. The gospel is a joyful message, but it is also a call to die. It is. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, Luke 9, 23, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. What's a cross? It's a a method to die. It's a means to die. It's the method that our Savior died in our place on. It is a joyful message and it is a call to die. And it is a paradox that only makes sense in the gospel. That the gospel message is a joyful call to die. It is to die to yourself, to die to your own pride, to die to your own pursuits, to your own ambitions, and to live for his pursuits and his ambitions and for his name and not your name. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, one of his famous quotes is, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer would eventually die 
um, for going back to Germany and conspiring to try to remove Adolf Hitler to save thousands of people from death. They would find him and hang him. But he leveraged his life to try to make an impact in the lives of others for the glory of God, to save lives. But he accepted the call to die. And it doesn't mean we all will die physically for our faith. It might happen for people in this room. It might happen with me. I'm not sure. Depends on where you go and how crazy things get, right? But there's a reason that Scripture constantly paints this picture of, yes, it is a joyful thing when the Holy Spirit brings us to new life. But James, actually, look at how he describes coming to the Lord. Uh, this is James 4. This will be on the screen. You won't expect this. But he says, dear, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We love that verse. And then he's sharp turn. Here it goes. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James says that true repentance is like going to a funeral and it's your funeral. It's going to the funeral of your own ambitions, of your own glory, of your own earthly kingdom and laying those at the foot of the cross. But it's a joyful thing. I don't want you to hear me say that this is a miserable thing. Matthew 13, 44, if you want to memorize a whole parable, memorize that one verse. It's a one-verse parable. Kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And a man finds the treasure and covers it up, and then in his joy, he sells all that he has to buy that field. That's the gospel message. It's a joyful call to forsake all that you have so that you can get the greater treasure, which is Christ. It is the death of your own ego and your own glory so that you can receive his glory and run after his name and his glory with your life. It is a joyful death because Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure of all. And in light of looking at him and seeing him, and when I look around at the earthly things, my stuff here on this earth, nothing compares. That when I truly take the time to look at the beauty of God and the majesty of God and all that he's done and his wisdom and that he's shown me Christ and that he's loved me, a wretch in all the ways that I ignore him, that he would love someone like me, nothing in this world compares to that. Paul says, I count all things as loss except for the surpassing worth of what? Of knowing Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things so I might know him and share in his sufferings and all of those things. It is a joyful call to die. And I think a lot of us and it comes from a good heart, and by a lot of us, I mean in the, in the church world, there's been this era in the church where we've all been results-based and looking at people's hands that have been raised and all those kind of things, that there's a temptation for us to always tweak the message. And not necessarily to something super heretical, but instead we take the focus off counting the cost. Jesus said, don't follow me unless you first count the cost. And we, we move the focus on, hey, Jesus Christ will make you happy right? Hey, trust in Jesus and life will get better. And circumstantially, that could be true depending on what you mean by life could be better. But circumstantially, we know it, it's not going to instantly get better. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. James said, count it joy when you face trials. Peter says, why are you surprised when the fiery trial comes on you as if it's something strange that were happening to you? Like you knew this was going to happen. There's actually more judgment and more trial for the believer in this life. We get the brokenness of this world, but we also experience the persecution from the world. 
And there's like double trouble for believers in this life, but it's worth it for the treasure that we get, which is Jesus Christ himself. But so many times we're so quick to, we want to count hands, we want to, you know, people to raise their hands and we tweak the message. And we tell people, hey, Jesus came to give you happiness, came to give you purpose, and all those things are true. But there's an, there's, it's interesting, when you read the New Testament, none of those things are bad in themselves. But it's funny that heaven is never the carrot that the, the gospel proclaimers dangle in front of people to receive Jesus. It's never, hey, get Jesus and you'll get heaven. It's no, the gospel message is forsake your sin and fall on your knees and receive Jesus so you get him. He's the treasure. God is the gospel. It's not that we get all these other things and those are great and those are true. But the message of the gospel is that you and I can get God. Broken, fallen, wretched sinners like us can know the creator of the universe intimately. That's the good news. And so many people that instantly receive the message with joy, right? And we, we present these alternatives, right? Like go to hell forever or live in heaven forever and eat all you want and never gain weight. Which will you choose? And we've taken the, the focus off of the treasure, which is Christ, right? Burn forever or, you know, run forever and never get tired. And we present these alternatives and of course, right? But we don't tell people to count the cost. We don't tell people it's a call to die to self daily. And we change the message because we want to count hands or we want people to respond. We want to, to present stats to you so you'll give more and all these kind of things instead of trusting God with the soil of people's hearts and presenting the, the actual message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is reconciling sinners to himself who would see him for who he really is and believe in him by faith and repent of their sin and turn from their ways and lay down their lives to follow him. That's the good news of the gospel. But so many times we tweak it because we're afraid of how someone might respond and go, oh yeah, I don't want that. But what happens when these people that initially received Jesus because they wanted happiness, they wanted purpose, and all the things that Jesus gives us, but that's the carrot that they wanted. They didn't want him. They just wanted Jesus to give them the things that they really wanted. What happens when life gets hard? Whoa, 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 whoa. You told me I'd be happy. Now I've got the world making fun of me and calling me a bigot and you know, ignorant and outdated, and this is not what I signed up for. This isn't it. I signed up to be happy. I signed up because this would help my business. I signed up for all these other things. I was using Jesus to get what I really wanted. And I received the word with joy, but then what happens? Trouble comes my way. Bad circumstances come my way. Persecution comes my way. And go, whoa, 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 whoa. This isn't the happiness that I was promised. And people walk away. Anybody... Uh, I've lived this a lot of times over. Um, the shallow soil is uh, the friend. Uh, and don't point any fingers or anything like that. But anybody have a friend that you know that when they're with you, you know, when they're in amongst your family, you know, they go through the motions of church and all those kind of things. But there's a part of you that always wonders, okay, what are, what's gonna happen when they aren't with us anymore, right? What's gonna happen when these students go off to college? Has the seed actually taken root? Uh, my family, we've just had cousins and friends and different people, basketball teammates live with us over the years for different reasons. And, uh, you know, when they're with us, they're at church with us, they're hearing the messages, right? But I'm wondering, are they actually listening? Like, do they have the ears to hear it? 
They're going along with us. They're singing the songs. They're doing all the things. But there's a part of you that wonders, okay, has the gospel seed actually taken root? Or has it fallen on shallow soil? To when they go out on their own and things get hard and things get tough and they don't have kind of the, the faith by association, when they have to stand on their own faith, are they gonna stand on the foundation which is Christ? Or are they gonna crumble because of the, the heat of the world? Right? How do you know what's the wax and what's the real? Heat it up. And by God's grace, he has given the world, given us this life and this world to expose those who are phony, to melt the wax, and to show those to where the gospel seed has taken root. We could have called this message, you know, is Kanye saved, right? Um, so many people ask that question. What would be the response? Give it time, right? Same thing that I would say for any of us. Give it time because the, the world's gonna heat it up, right? If you truly follow Jesus, there's persecution, there's slander from the world, there's trial, there's circumstances, and those that are not genuine will be scorched by the heat, and those that have taken root, the gospel has taken root in good soil, they will persevere through those things. As believers, it doesn't mean that you and I don't have any rocks that don't experience thorns. We experience all those things. But the seed that's fallen on good soil perseveres through those things. Does that make sense? This is what Jesus is getting at. Will believers struggle and go through things in this life that are not fun? You better believe it. People will die before we think they should. People will abandon us that we didn't think should have. We'll lose jobs we think we shouldn't have lost. Cancer will show up and God won't respond how we think he should respond. And if we're just using God to get what we want, we put our quarter in the gumball machine and we didn't get our gumball and we're out of here. I scratched God's back and he didn't scratch mine. And the, 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 the struggle, the heat, and the persecution of the world scorches the faith away, scorches the seed away. Does that make sense? This is what he's getting at. Judas is a prime example of this. Following Jesus, getting all these free meals, counting the money people are giving to this message, all the things. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts saying things like, this woman has anointed my body for burial, and in three days, they're gonna destroy me, and I'll be back, and all this. And Jesus, Judas is like, I'm, I'm gone. Jesus is looking at him saying, you're gonna be persecuted on account of me. And he's like, see ya. Right? I was just in it for what Jesus could give me. I received this message initially with joy. We were gonna follow this celebrity around and he was gonna feed us and heal us and take care of us. But I gotta suffer for this thing? I'm out. And he walked away. And to be honest, I'll say this and move on. I don't mean this to be crude. Um, but to believe in a deity, to get all these other blessings one day, is true in Islam. It's true in Mormonism. What makes the gospel different is that we believe in God to get God. It's not to get these other things. And that's the, the, the paradox or the irony of the gospel is if you're using Jesus to get all these other things that you actually want, you get neither. But if you run to Jesus because you want him, you get him and the blessings of heaven and everything else. He's the treasure. He's what we long for. And these are why the parables are not fun to walk through. Because we gotta, I gotta spend a week asking these questions of my own heart. Like, why am I following Jesus? Is it because what he'll give me? Is it because what I can use him to get for myself? Or do I actually want him for who he is and what he's done for me? 
Hard questions to ask. These parables are gonna bring some hard realities that we have to face, but we need to keep moving on to the next soil. So, um, the thorns, verse seven. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. What does Jesus say? Verse 22, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfaithful. Now, here's the difference between this soil and the last soil. If you look at the last soil, this was um, attacks externally from the outside coming at us, right? Trouble, trial, persecution from the outside. This soil is attacks that come within the inside, right? If the shallow soil is, hey, I'm getting attacked from the outside, persecuted from the outside, this soil among the thorns is all of the attacks on the inside. This is the crowded heart. This is all the things that are competing for the throne of my heart internally. All the things I love, all the things that I love more than Jesus at times, all the things that I care about. This is um, when the gospel seed takes root, so many of us love our stuff, love our appearance, love our own name, love our own glory, love our business, whatever it is, more than we love the treasure himself. And this is where the love and the cares of this world choke out the seed and the message of the gospel. This is the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and wants to follow him. What must I do? And Jesus looks at him and says, sell all that you have and then come follow me. And it says, the man went away sad. Why did Jesus do that? Is it a requirement for us to sell all that we have to follow him? No, but Jesus who knows our hearts knew what was actually on the throne of that man's heart. And it wasn't Jesus Christ, it was his own stuff. It was his possessions. That's where he found his worth from. That's where he found his identity from. That's where he found his security from. And Jesus says, you have to be at the heart level. You have to be willing to sell all of those things to get me. Is it a requirement for all of us to physically sell our stuff to follow Jesus? No, but spiritually it is. Is that we see Jesus as a treasure that greater than anything this life can give and anything that death can take from us. And we run after him with our lives. And we use the good things God's given us. It's not a sin to have name brand things or have nice and shiny things, but it's, it's a sin to worship those things and to put those on the throne of your hearts and to trust them and find your worth and your value and your identity in them. They can't give you what he can. They can't satisfy your soul for a second. It's not a sin to have them, but it's a sin to trust in them for a moment because they cannot give you what he can give you. And this is the seed that falls in the heart that is very crowded with the love of lots of other things. Not the external struggle, but the internal struggle. The rich young ruler. There's actually a man in uh, 2 Timothy chapter four, as Paul ends his letter, uh, his name's Demas, and Paul says this, it'll be on the screen, it says, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And what's so Disappointing about that phrase is Paul ends his letter to the Colossians, which was written earlier, and talks about how Demas is a son and a servant in the faith, and he's doing well. And then Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy, he says, now Demas has fallen in love with the world, and he's gone. He's deserted me, he's deserted Christ, and the seed fell, but the thorns and the cares of this world choked it out. And now he's walked away. 1 John says this, do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, 
but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The Bible is constantly trying to get your heart and your eyes off of this world and onto the next world. The treasure for the believer is not of this world. It is a heavenly treasure and it is Jesus Christ himself. The kingdom of heaven, the gospel, is like a man who finds a treasure in a field. And in his joy, he sells all that he has at the heart level. And he buys that field. Why? Because he's found the greater treasure. And at the heart level, he's willing to forsake everything else to follow him. But if Jesus is just a Sunday buddy that you add to your weekend list of activities, then the cares of the world will choke out that seed. It will. Lastly, let's look at the good soil. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. Now, notice what's changed each time. It's not the seed. God in his grace allows the seed to go to all nations and to all peoples. Matthew tells us this, that the gospel will go to all people groups and then the end will come. That God in his grace will allow the seed to go to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and language. But the issue is not the seed. It's the condition of the soil. It's the heart's. What does Jesus say in verse 23? As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another 60, and then another 30. And this is where we'll use Luke to kind of help us illustrate, okay, what is this good soil? What does that mean? What does a heart like that look like? Luke gives us a little more details in Luke 8, 15, if you want to make a note in your Bible. Um, he says, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, Hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. An honest and good heart. That's all it takes. That's it. What is the good soil? It's an honest heart. What is he honest about? His need, his inadequacy, his brokenness, his sin, and his longing for a savior to come and do for him what he couldn't do for himself. That's a heart that's ready to receive the gospel message. Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sick. I didn't come for the healthy. I came to call the sinners. I came for those who knew that they needed me. And Jesus says, hey, you want a heart that's soft and that's ready to receive the gospel message? All you have to do is to be honest and to be open and to be humble and to be broken about your need for grace and your need for a savior. And that's when you're ready. It's not those who worked harder. It's not those who did more. It's not those who were smarter. It's those who were honest about their brokenness. That's a heart that's soft. That's soil that's ready to receive the good news of the gospel because Jesus looks at a heart that says, hey, I need a savior and shows up and says, I am he. I'm the one. I'll take your sin. I'll give you my righteousness. I died for you. All you have to be do, all you have to do to be willing or to be worthy of the gospel is to recognize that you're not worthy of it at all. That's the good news. It's a broken and contrite heart the Lord does not despise. This is what he's looking for. Not the self-righteous, not those that love everything else. The, the soil that's ready is, God, I've tried everything else. I've tried the world. I've tried my appearance. I've tried my business. I've tried my own success. I've tried my reputation. All of it leaves me empty. None of it satisfies my soul. I need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself and what this world cannot give me. And Jesus says, that's when you're ready. That's when the gospel seed takes root and brings forth life and brings forth fruit. An honest person that recognizes their need for a savior. And I looked at a lot of commentaries about the 30 and the 60 and the 100 and most of them said, 
They're not quite sure if these have any kind of secret, you know, numerical meanings, but it does mean that some people are going to produce more fruit than others in this life. That when the gospel seed takes our hearts, it will produce more fruit, but in some people than others. But I want to be clear, that does not mean that you and I couch our faith and go, well, you know, some people are going to produce more fruit than others. I'll just sit here and not do anything, right? A heart like that might not be as soft as we think it is. Our job is to ask the Lord to soften our hearts and to respond to the gospel and leverage our lives for the glory of his name. And God brings the growth. 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God brings the growth. He's sovereign over it. It's our job to run after him and he will use the gifts that he's given us by his spirit to impact his kingdom. And some will produce 30, some 60, some 100. But like I said, the goal is not to look around and go, yeah, that looks like a 60 person. You look like you're a 30 person, right? I'm 100. No, the goal is to, to humble ourselves and say, God, I hope my heart is soft. God, I don't even know the condition of my own heart. So many times I fool myself. God, soften my heart by your grace. Show me how much I need you. Help me cling to you today and tomorrow and the next day. And then I'll produce fruit. John 15, how do you produce fruit if you're a believer? You abide in Christ. You don't will it more, right? You don't exert more. You don't, no, you just know Christ more. You spend time with him more. You, you dwell with him more intimately. And then you'll produce more love, more joy, more peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all the fruits of the spirit. What's the way to do that? It's not to come up with a more tight to-do list, right? No, it's to dwell with Jesus. And the more you dwell with him and spend time with him, the more fruit you will bear and the more fruit you will produce. But that's the good news of the message. Jesus ends with, he who has ears, let him hear. This is a hard parable to hear. And the question is not, Who's what soil and how much fruit are they producing? Our response is, Lord, soften my heart once again. Maybe for some of you, like we prayed and asked, we're praying that some of you, God softens your heart for the first time where this gospel message can take root in your life and that we would abide in him. We would walk with him. We would know him more. If you wanna know, okay, what do I need to do with my life, right? All this big old sermon, all these soils, what do I need to do? Be satisfied in God, that's it. Love him, know him, worship him, enjoy him. Be satisfied in him. And the more satisfied you are in him, the more glory you'll give him in your life. The more he'll be glorified through your actions. Out of everything we've said today, what do you do? Know Christ and enjoy him. Be satisfied in him and he'll be glorified in you when he's the affection of your hearts. So as we respond, Let's be faithful, if you're a believer, to sow seed. Let's be faithful to ask the Lord to soften our hearts on a daily basis. And if you're an unbeliever in the room, and maybe you feel like if it's conviction, if the Lord's been working in your life this morning, maybe today's the day where some of the rocks started getting taken out, some of the thorns started getting cut, and you feel like God used this sermon to say, hey, I need that. I don't know what that is that he talked about fully, but I, I need that. I need to ask a question about that. I need to talk about that. Today's your day. We would gladly give up the rest of our afternoon to talk to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ if the Lord has used this message to soften your heart. But church, let's be a people who hear these words and abide in Christ. Ask the Lord to soften our hearts on a daily basis.
so that we can continue to receive the good news of the gospel and we can bear fruit. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you for your word. Father, I pray that we would have ears to hear this message. God, that those that know that they've never put their faith in you, that know that historically the seed has fallen um, among the rocks and the thorns and the path, God, I pray today would be the day that you plow and till the soil of their hearts. God, for all of us, God, give us humility. Forgive us for all the times that we are convinced that we're on good soil. God, as soon as we think we are, we're probably missed it. God, help us to continue to long for you, to abide in you, to walk with you. And God, when we do that and we're satisfied in you, we will produce fruit. God, you're sovereign over the growth. So God, we invite you to do what only you can do. Help us to continue to be faithful to sow seed. We worship you, God, because you didn't have to sow anything in our hearts. But because of your great love with which you loved us, God, you sent your son, you sent the the gospel message, you've given us the scriptures, God, so that we might know you intimately. What a God would look down on sinful, broken humanity and want to know us and dwell with us. All of this is because of your grace. And because of that we sing. In Jesus' name.